Welcome to The Lead. We're going to start with some breaking news. Just minutes ago, the U.S. Supreme Court hit pause, pause on the battle in the case of the abortion drug Mifepristone. This means women, girls, doctors can continue to have full access to one of, if not the most common uh, method of abortion, uh, Mifepristone, without any restrictions, at least for now. The ruling, the decision, takes us back to how the situation was in the United States before that Texas judge ruled in which suspended access, theoretically, to Mifepristone. Uh, We're going to start with CNN's Jessica Schneider. And Jessica, this came down just minutes ago. Tell us more about the ruling. And this isn't the end of this fight, right? I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court's going to still make a decision on this. This is not the end, Jake. That is right. This merely puts this on pause for about five days. I mean, you can see it's a very short order here. Um, what this does is this is um, this is Justice Samuel Alito granting in part what the DOJ and FDA was asking for here. They were saying, if you if you can't give us anything else, give us an administrative stay, which basically puts a very brief pause on any of the changes that the Fifth Circuit had ordered. So what does this mean practically? Well, this means that full access to Mifepristone remains. It remains just like it did before that Texas judge ruled one week ago, because the concern was that if the Supreme Court did not do what it just did moments ago, that overnight tonight, um, 1 a.m. Eastern time, there was concern that all of the rules surrounding this abortion pill, Mifepristone, would have to be changed. That would mean that doctors would be instructed not to allow women to take this past seven weeks of pregnancy, because right now it's at 10 weeks of pregnancy. There were also concerns that they'd make them change the rules about telemedicine and getting this drug in the mail. For now, none of those rules are changing as was feared, and things will remain the same. However, this is a very short window of relief for the DOJ and the FDA. The Supreme Court is saying that as of 11.59 p.m. on Wednesday, um, this stay will expire. So presumably, sometime on Wednesday, we will once again be waiting for the Supreme Court to weigh into this and to see if there's a longer stay put on this. You know, the appeals process is already moving forward in the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit has already set a very aggressive briefing schedule. They've already set uh, oral arguments for May 17th. So things are moving along at the appeals level because, remember, this is just about pausing what the Fifth Circuit put into effect. The Supreme Court is doing that. There will be no changes. But, Jake, as you mentioned, this legal battle continues to play out. And once again, on Wednesday, all day, we'll probably be on pins and needles again, much like we were today, waiting for the Supreme Court to once again weigh in and see if they'll continue to put these rules or these changes once again on hold. Jake? All right, Jessica Schneider with the breaking news. Thanks. Let's bring in CNN Senior Supreme Court Analyst Joan Biskupic, along with Tom Dupree, he's a former Principal Deputy Attorney General in the George W. Bush administration. Um, Joan, help us better understand what Justice Alito did here and also whether or not it's still possible that this conservative U.S. Supreme Court will ultimately make a decision to ban mifepristone, which is a legal drug the FDA approved two decades ago, whether or not it's still possible that they will ban it nationally. Yeah, uh, Jake, what they did was what uh, Justice Alito did was actually very sensible. Just putting this pause in place. Think of how fast moving everything has been in the past seven days. There are conflicting lower court decisions out there that the Justice Department had said caused regulatory chaos. You know, the the uh, courts down in Texas had said that the FDA had to. Uh, 
decrease the availability of the drug. Meanwhile, a judge in Washington state had said that no, the FDA could not alter uh, access for women to this drug. So there's there's just been so much happening in the past seven days. And what the, the Justice Alito has said is, we're gonna pause this for five days, The original challengers, the anti-abortion physicians and medical associations will now respond to the Department of Justice and drug manufacturers request that a longer stay be put in place while uh, appeals are actually heard. They're going to be able to respond by Tuesday noon to make their case for why actually the drug should not be as available. Uh, But you're absolutely right that this action today does not foreshadow which way they're going to go. Now, you know that I think this is a very different case than what the justices did last June when they completely eviscerated uh, constitutional abortion rights and put the matter in the hands of the states. I think given the nature of the FDA's authority and expertise here, they could eventually side with the FDA. But what you're saying is also a possibility. They could, at the end of everything, after hearing arguments or seeing what the Fifth Circuit does, could agree that uh, the FDA overstepped its authority and maybe even completely was wrong when it approved uh, and endorsed the safety and effectiveness of this drug. Tom, is that possible? Do you think ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court, and I can only think of three votes uh, that uh, will that are guaranteed uh, to say that the FDA was right and has a right to uh, allow uh, access to mifepristone, I can only think of three Uh, of the nine, uh, is it possible the U.S. Supreme Court will ultimately rule uh, that this ban should be national? It's very possible, Jake. Look, what makes this case particularly complex is that on one hand, yes, obviously it's an abortion case, and we all know the way the current Supreme Court splits on questions of abortion. We saw the voting lineup in the Dobbs case uh, from earlier, from last year. But at the same time, this case is more complex because We're, we're losing we're losing your volume. You're losing your sound there. Let, let, let's uh, let, let's go uh, back to Joan uh, while uh, Tom Dupree uh, figures out his his uh, audio. Um, Joan, what is the the case here? I mean, my understanding is that mifepristone is safer than other drugs that the FDA has approved, uh, like penicillin, uh, like Viagra. Um, Is there a safety issue here that scientists and doctors uh, seriously acknowledge is a problem? Or is this because, um, is this on theological grounds? The the judge is religiously opposed to abortion and looking for a way to bring his religious views uh, to the law. Well, you know, that's a very real concern. And what the federal government and the drug maker have said uh, is that, look, this, this, uh, these scientific determinations are longstanding. The studies are deep. It's, uh, it is not a dangerous drug, and that has been shown over time. What the judge in this case, Matthew Kaczmarek, a 2019 uh, appointee of Donald Trump, who, as you're suggesting, did have a background in uh, anti-abortion advocacy, he reevaluated everything. He went and uh, looked at his own studies, his own field of uh, evidence to make his determination that this drug is not safe and that it really harms women and that it hurts the physicians that brought the case because what he 
he has asserted in his opinion is that they end up having to care for women where um, uh, these medication abortions have gone wrong. And what the Department of Justice has said is this is, you know, baloney. <laughs> they use better legal terms. But basically what they said is that he had no he has no real evidence for finding this. And it was and furthermore, what they say is it's unprecedented for a federal district court judge to try to put himself in the shoes of the agency where the expertise resides. So I, I can see indeed why many people would be challenging that. And that's why I, I actually think in the end, and you know, in the abortion context now, you know, any kind of predictions are, are really fraught in so many ways. But I think that there's so much at stake in terms of the power of the Food and Drug Administration to use its, its knowledge and its experience to assess all sorts of drugs uh, not just mifepristone, but any existing and new drugs for the market, Jake. Yeah, but Joan, let me just ask you, playing devil's advocate here. Okay, we have the three left-leaning judges, yeah. uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson uh, and Sotomayor and Kagan. They will, they will vote to keep uh, mifepristone on the market. You can argue maybe, maybe Chief Justice Roberts, uh, who was trying to propose this this for want of a better term, middle path mm-hmm. uh, of a 15-week abortion ban being okay, but nothing before then. Uh, but where's where's the fifth vote, okay. Joan? Where's the fifth <laughs> yeah, vote for right, Mitha right. to be legal? Yeah, you know, I hate to be put on the spot defending where the Supreme Court's going to go, but let's just use it as an example what uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who was with the majority in the Dobbs decision back in June that, as I said, completely gutted constitutional abortion rights, what he wrote separately in a concurrence, and I know you're well aware of this, Jake, what he wrote was that we are definitely not trying to outlaw abortion nationwide. He said that. He said we are leaving it to the states. Judges so, should not be in position, and this, these were words he used, judges should not be making policy and moral decisions. And that's what Judge Kaczmarek has done in some ways. He he took on the responsibility as a decision maker. And, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, just again, I'll, I'll play along with your devil's advocacy here. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh may be someone who would give a vote to say, no, we're in a whole different scheme here because, bottom line, if you uh, diminish or completely eliminate access to this uh, medication abortion drug, you are you are making it almost impossible then down the road to have uh, abortions in the states that currently have it legalized because, as you know, medication abortion is now the dominant means for women to end their yeah. pregnancies. So, so that's, I, that's I what hear I'm what you're saying, but yeah. you're saying the, the you're, 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 it's theoretical. Yes, of course, everything's theoretical. But, but Justice Kavanaugh yeah. would not take an action that would contradict something he has said before. And I'm wondering if Senator Susan Collins, uh, among other people, might think that they don't know that Kavanaugh can be counted on to be consistent like that based on things he said before he was confirmed. But it's all theoretical. Uh, Joan, thanks so much. Your, really. your point is well taken, Jake. All Thank right. You. I'm, I'm just what Susan Collins might say. I'm just, <laughs> right. uh, you know, I'm, I'm channeling her. Thank you so much, Joan Biscupa. Coming up, the alleged thanks. leaker of the secret U.S. documents makes his first court appearance and is charged with violating the Federal Espionage Act. New details unveiled in court documents today. That massive leak of classified U.S. documents tops our world lead today. Jack Tashira, a relatively low-ranking 21-year-old airman for the Massachusetts Air National Guard, was in court in Boston today. Tashira is facing two charges, including one 
for violation of the Espionage Act. This is over his unauthorized retention and transmission of national defense information, allegedly. He was arrested yesterday. The leaks have already strained relationships with U.S. allies and jeopardized access to crucial information that gave the U.S. government insight into Russia's moves in Ukraine. Despite all this, an official tells CNN that Tashira underwent, quote, a very rigorous background check and held a top-secret security clearance since 2021. CNN's Jason Carroll is outside the courthouse in Boston for us, where we heard from Tashira's family today. Jack Teixeira's family leaving federal court in Boston Friday afternoon, refusing to answer any questions. The 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guardsman made his first appearance in front of a federal judge today. He's now charged with unauthorized retention and transmission of national defense information and unauthorized removal and retention of classified documents and or material. An unsealed affidavit shows that Teixeira was granted top-secret security clearance back in 2021 and had access to highly classified programs. The affidavit alleges he began posting classified documents starting in 2022 and then recently, on April 6, used a government computer to search a database using the word leak once it was publicly revealed that someone was leaking classified documents. This is not just about taking home documents. People who um, um, uh, sign agreements uh, to be able to receive classified documents acknowledge the importance to the national security of not uh, disclosing those documents. Teixeira was an IT specialist and entered the Air National Guard in September of 2019 and was recently promoted to the rank of Airman First Class. According to official U.S. sources, Teixeira is believed to be the leader of a small group on the social media platform Discord, a site popular with video gamers and where the classified documents had been posted. The leaked classified documents included a wide range of highly classified information, including eavesdropping on key allies and adversaries and blunt assessments on the state of the Ukraine war. Investigators ultimately narrowed in on the chat group. According to a U.S. government source familiar with the case, Teixeira was under surveillance for at least a couple of days prior to his arrest. While President Biden played down the security damage on Thursday, today, he released a statement saying in part, I've directed our military and intelligence community to take steps to further secure and limit distribution of sensitive information. And our national security team is closely coordinating with our partners and allies. But the ultimate national security impact of the leak still to be determined. The Department of Defense is leading an important effort now to evaluate and review the national security implications. And Jake Teixeira's father briefly showed support for his son while he was in court today. During the end of the court proceeding, at one point he shouted out, love you, Jack. And at that point, Teixeira looked straight ahead and said, you too, Dad. His next court appearance is scheduled for next Wednesday. That will be his detention hearing here at federal court. Jake. All right, Jason Carroll in Boston. Thank you so much. Let's bring in David Priest. He's a former CIA officer and author of The President's Book of Secrets. Um, David, uh, why would the Massachusetts Air National Guard need to have access to these secrets? Yeah, Jake, this is not the National Guard that some uh, older 
viewers might remember. Uh, it is an integral part of the Air Force. And if you think about the last 20 years with Afghanistan and Iraq, you have had National Guard deployments, Air National Guard deployments to both conflicts. In, in some cases, people serving in those units have deployed even more than some uh, straight line Air Force officers. So they need that intelligence to do those missions. There are legitimate questions about what types of intelligence. Did they need the type of strategic intelligence judgments that are in some of these documents? And I'm sure that that is something that the Department of Defense and other senior policymakers are going to be having some very serious discussions about in the future. Encrypted messaging apps, uh, such as Discord, where uh, these classified documents were disseminated, uh, are becoming only more and more popular. Uh, is it possible for the intelligence community to even police them? It's really a high bar if you think about it. There are probably tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of private chats going on all the time in a lot of these various networks that support everything from Minecraft to Fortnite to Call of Duty. And if you want the U.S. government monitoring every single one of those for the very slim chance that somebody is discussing classified information, first of all, taxes are going to go way up because you've got to hire thousands of people to be monitoring that. And I'm not sure that the American people really want that level of monitoring of protected speech. The issue really comes with this individual and what he was motivated by in order to do this and what safeguards were there to make sure that classified information was not removed from the premises, which according to the documents today, it appears that this suspect did take documents out. It has to be proven in a court of law, but they brought some of the receipts in the documents today and they showed some good evidence that he was bringing documents out and there were no safeguards taken to ensure that didn't happen. Yeah, that's the primary issue, uh, not discord and obviously uh, policing and monitoring every U.S. phone call, uh, discord conversation, et cetera, is untenable. Um, the leak reveals how far U.S. intelligence was able to infiltrate the private uh, Russian Wagner group, a mercenary group led by Yevgeny Prigozhin. Uh, Prigozhin just posted, quote, perhaps uh, 21-year-old Jack uh, Tahera was stupid enough to leak the documents. Perhaps he was part of an undercover operation. If this leak had not happened, it would probably have been invented the next day, unquote. Um, what's your take on that? I think that reveals more about the paranoid Russian mindset of always thinking there's a conspiracy behind a conspiracy uh, than the most straightforward answer. Occam's razor really applies here. The documents lay out somebody who felt like he had access to these documents, wanted other people to see them, and took extraordinary means to do so. First, transcribing them, realizing that that was actually hard to do. It'd be easier just to print them, take them home, and take pictures of them, and then share them with friends, at least virtual friends. Uh, I'm not sure we need to go to the level that Prigozhin goes to in terms of assuming deeper motives here when we've seen no evidence of that. Yeah. David Priest, thanks so much. Always good to have you on. Coming up, a family's hope and pain. One of the American qualities that we absorbed, be optimistic, believe in happy, happy ending. That's uh, where we stand right now. We're going to hear from the parents of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich as he sits in a Russian prison falsely accused of spying. America's top negotiator to free detained U.S. citizens joins us.
In our world lead today, the family of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich is speaking out for the first time publicly since Russian authorities arrested their son, Evan, and accused him of espionage, a charge that the U.S. government calls baseless. The Wall Street Journal has released clips of its exclusive interview with his family. And as CNN's Alex Marquardt reports for us now, a Moscow court is set to hear an appeal against Gershkovich's detention next week. Feeling both pride and pain, the parents of Evan Gershkovich are speaking publicly about their son, languishing in a Russian jail and facing a possible sentence of 20 years in prison. I feel, feel that I've failed in some way as a father. Totally crushing that experience all came back from the Soviet Union. The Gershkovich parents are Soviet Jewish immigrants who came to the U.S. in 1979. Evan and his sister grew up speaking Russian. When Gershkovich decided to move there as a journalist, his parents knew there was little they could do. I couldn't have stopped him when he was 15, let alone, let alone now. Gershkovich bounced around different media outlets, landing at the Wall Street Journal just before Russia invaded Ukraine and started to crack down on journalists, many of whom left. I know that he felt like it was his duty to report, and uh, he loved Russian people, you know. He still does? He still does, yes. No longer is Russia fighting Ukraine. Gershkovich's pieces were well reported, often shining a light on the Putin regime, like this one in December on the Kremlin inner circle, which made his family nervous. I think when uh, that article came out about Putin in December, uh, got me worried a lot. Like, my mood was changing. Late last month, Gershkovich was arrested on a reporting trip to the central city of Yekaterinburg. The Internal Security Service, the FSB, quickly accused him of espionage. The U.S. government has declared it a wrongful detention, the attorney general said today, and an attack on press freedom. The United States will do everything in its power uh, to get the reporter back. Other Americans who were recently held by Russia and the family of Paul Whelan, who still is, have been vocal in their support. Taking a journalist, that kind of puts it into perspective for you how desperate the Russians have become. Next week, a Moscow court will hear an appeal by the Wall Street Journal's lawyers against Gershkovich's detention. His parents are hopeful, but know all too well the reality of Russia's judicial system. It's what's one of the American qualities that we absorbed. Be optimistic, believe in happy, happy ending. That's uh, where we stand right now. But I am not stupid. I understand what's involved. But that's what I choose to believe. And Jake, a major question after Gershkovich was arrested was whether the Russians were doing so in order to be able to exchange him for someone who they really want. An exchange is something that is possible that would be considered, according to Russia's deputy foreign minister, but only after a trial and a verdict. Unfortunately, we almost certainly know what the verdict would be, considering that the Kremlin said that Gershkovich uh, was caught carrying out espionage red-handed. Yeah. Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. Uh, let's bring in Roger Carstens. He serves as the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs. He had that position under Trump and, and continues to have it under President Biden. Good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. So you recently met with uh, the Gershkovich family. Um, Russia says it's only, uh, there only will be a swap potentially after a trial. Um, what's the status of negotiations? When do you think you can bring this innocent reporter home? 
Jay, first off, thanks for having me here. Uh, I did have a chance to see the family yesterday. Uh, we went up and spent about three hours with them, members of my team, uh, the family members, and members of the Wall Street Journal staff. And it was a good, uh, good meeting. I know you didn't ask about this. I want to say uh, the family struck me as positive, resilient, and had a chance to learn a little more about Evan. And that's important to us as we start to map out our strategy. Uh, in talking with the families, and we always do when we take a new case, we sometimes come up with uh, ideas and thoughts that we might not have had otherwise. And frankly, the family partners with us, and they, we get a sense of how they'd like to take uh, any possible negotiations as well. In terms of the negotiations, uh, it, it's, it's in a way too early right now. In our mind, we've mapped out where we think we might want to go, but a lot of it's going to be based on whether we can get them out before that. I mean, you said at the beginning, Evan's innocent and these charges are baseless. It's our deepest hope that as we press the Russians, they'll come to that realization and just let Evan go. And if not, we'll have to progress further into probably some sort of negotiated settlement. But we're hopeful that maybe we can get something done before that by just making sure that the Russians are aware that he is innocent. He's not a spy. He's never been a spy never worked for the U.S. government. Yeah. He's a reporter, and he's doing his job. Yeah, one presumes that they're doing this, um, if not just because it's in Putin's nature to not be a good person, but also because they want something, they want someone in particular. Russia's ambassador to the U.S. says he had a very harsh conversation with the U.S. government over the detainment of Gershkovich, uh, adding that the meeting achieved no practical outcome. And he went on to say that the Kremlin might order uh, rules that would reduce the number of American journalists permitted in Russia. Now, I think that would be a shame. I mean, uh, part of the uh, importance of journalists is that they can speak truth to the public. They can speak truth to power. Uh, Evan well, that's, certainly there you go. That. That's, why they don't want, that's why they don't want journalists exactly in, in right. Russia. You know, I, I think some uh, journalists I've talked to are afraid that it's going to have a chilling effect, not just in Russia, but in other countries. I think it's in the interests of everyone to try to resolve this as quickly as possible in a way that allows journalists to keep doing their job. Have the Russians indicated anybody that they want that's retained? I mean, there was just a a young uh, spy that was masquerading uh, Mm -hmm. as a student that was arrested, maybe like like a week or two before Gershkovich was arrested. I mean, Mm -hmm. have they said anything behind the scenes? We want this guy? They have not. Uh, But you're asking a good question. Uh, There are negotiations I've had in the past, not with the Russians, where the other side is actually, through a secret channel, said, we're doing something, and by the way, here's what we want to get out of this. In this case, there have been no discussions uh, of that sort, and uh, we don't yet know. So, um, obviously, you know the sister of Paul Whelan. Uh, Paul Whelan's been uh, imprisoned for so long now, years and years, former U.S. Marine, wrongfully detained in Russia. She uh, released a video expressing frustration at her brother's continued imprisonment uh, in Russia. Take a look. The job is to get Paul Whelan home. But what is being conveyed right now to the Whelan family with these red lines and talks of impossible trades is that not only is Paul Whelan worth less than some Russian criminal, he is ultimately worth less than other Americans. Paul Whelan deserves better than he is getting for results. He has the White House attention to his case, and now he needs the White House to get the job done. Obviously referring to Trevor Reed and Brittany Griner, who were imprisoned too long, uh, but less time uh, than their than her brother. Indeed, uh, uh, this is a tough one. I, I, I understand her frustration. Uh, I've, I've been talking to Elizabeth for almost three years now. I've been talking to Paul Whelan. Paul and I talked uh, as early as last Monday. We spent 15 minutes on the phone. And frankly, I brought up Evan's case. I, t- I told Paul what was going on, uh, gave him a sense of what was happening and told him that he was now wrongfully uh, determined to be wrongfully detained. Uh, we're not taking our foot off the gas. Uh, we're going to find a way to bring Paul and Evan home. But I want you to know that Evan and Paul, and I'm going to say Paul because I've been working on this case for so long, 
They're front and center in our mind. We are going to find a way to get this done. Um, the Chinese government announced uh, yesterday it's, uphold, it's upholding a death sentence uh, for American Mark uh, Swedan, uh, who's been detained in China for more than a decade on drug trafficking charges. Uh, Swedan has uh, just had a two-year rep- reprieve um, before he's executed. Um, what's going on uh, to stop this? Well, we were disappointed in that ruling. We were hopeful that the Chinese would perhaps relent and allow Mark to come home. As you said, he's been held for uh, 10 years now in pretrial detention, some pretty tough conditions. Uh, I've had a chance to fly down to uh, see his mother on a few occasions. My team's actually flying down tomorrow to see her, to spend some time with her, to discuss what we're doing. But we have, a, we have an effort right now with the Chinese, and we have to just kind of let things play out. I mean, this is tough. Uh, at the end of the day, the uh, Chinese, just like the Russians, they hold the key to the gel cell, and it's going to be up to us to find that way to bring them back. All right, Roger Carston, Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs. You have a tough job. We appreciate your coming here. Thanks for having me on, Jake. Coming up, it's one of the most dangerous treks in the world. CNN spends five days walking through the Darien Gap, the same journey thousands of migrants make every year. Stay with us. In our world lead, we are learning more today about the more than 200 migrants who were found trapped and screaming for help in an abandoned trailer on the side of a Mexican highway. The Mexican National Guard found the truck Wednesday night, and officials say they could hear people inside begging for air, begging for water. The discovery is a reminder of the lengths people will go to to get to the United States. Some of those migrants in Mexico had already likely survived an incredibly treacherous journey across the Darien Gap. Recently, CNN's Nick Payton Walsh and his team actually hiked the entire Darien Gap for CNN's new program, The Whole Story, with Anderson Cooper. The Darien Gap, if you don't know, it's a dangerous 66-mile trek through dense jungle with no roads that connect South and Central America. Every year, thousands of people attempt it, all to get them closer to the U.S., 3,000 miles away. Along the journey, CNN came across dozens, dozens of unaccompanied children. A football shirt, a porter's, each numbered, charging to carry bags, even children uphill. But it doesn't always work out. Wilson is separated from his parents. Their porter raced off ahead. Nearly a thousand unaccompanied children were found on the route last year, the UN have said. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh joins us now. That's heartbreaking. Uh, Nick, you and your crew spent five days in the Darien Gap. What surprised you most about what you saw? 
Certainly the volume of people, the volume of children there, the numbers are staggering. A record 250,000 made this trek last year. But in the first quarter of this year, we're talking about a sevenfold increase compared to the same period in that previous record-breaking year. So there could be over a million. And at times that translates into a traffic jam of people in the jungle, all waiting at choke points to get over a tree route or pass through a particularly difficult ravine. It's startling to turn around and see hundreds of people behind you trying to make their way, including very young children, some sick, being carried by their parents. And also, too, I think the thing that really struck me was how the grit and determination of people to keep going and get through this danger is a reflection of the horrors, really, that they leave behind. You talked about the migrants in Mexico there being discovered. These are people willing to endure pretty significant risk to themselves and their family because of the lives they flee in Haiti, Venezuela, Ecuador, China, the top four nations so far on the trek this year. But the wonderful thing, Jake, to witness was the moments of generosity, of extraordinary humanity amongst strangers, looking to be sure that nobody was left behind on the trek, picking up a stranger who'd hurt their ankle, carrying somebody else's disabled child for a day, simply to be sure that they could feel good about what they'd seen on their way on that perilous trek. It's a cynical process run by a drug cartel, trying to get money out of people, promising them an easy ride when it's far from that. But really, I came away from that with something edifying, frankly, that even in the worst moments, born of desperation through utter peril to get to something better, a dream, you see some of the best of humanity, Jake. Incredible. Um, And you can see more of Nick's journey in the very first installment of the brand new CNN series, The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper, The Trek. It's a migrant trail to America, and it's this Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Texas Governor Abbott intends to pardon a man convicted of murder, but now text messages and online posts not introduced in the trial show that same man has a history of racist and violent rants. We'll break down the details next. Topping our national lead today, some shocking newly unsealed documents show that the Texas man convicted one week ago today of murder in that fatal shooting of a protesters, protester at a Black Lives Matter rally in 2020, whom Republican Governor Greg Abbott of Texas announced he intends to pardon, that that individual described himself as a racist, compared Black Lives Matter protesters to a zoo full of monkeys, and talked openly on social media about wanting to kill people. CNN's Ed Lavendera reports on these disturbing messages, most of which were not shown to the jury. When Black Lives Matter protests erupted around the country in the summer of 2020, newly released court documents revealed Daniel Perry intensely watched the chaos, quickly becoming angry. In a social media post, he described the protesters as a zoo full of monkeys. The unsealed documents include 76 pages of social media postings and text messages. Most of these details were not shown to the jury that convicted the Army sergeant of murdering protester Garrett Foster and raises new questions about why Texas Governor Greg Abbott is rushing a push to pardon this convicted murderer. Foster's family and longtime partner have called the governor's call for a pardon disgusting. This has been a complete nightmare. The court documents show Perry talked about killing people and shared racist memes and comments on social media, including a 2019 message saying, too bad we can't get paid for hunting Muslims in Europe. 
And in a Facebook message in May 2020, just months before the deadly shooting, Perry wrote, he might have to kill a few people on my way to work. Another text said, I might go to Dallas to shoot looters. Perry's attorneys called the release of the documents a political move by prosecutors and said Foster also made posts advocating violence. In this 2020 post, Foster praised the burning of a Minneapolis police station. Perry's attorneys are calling for a new trial, saying they want to introduce evidence that Foster repeatedly instigated confrontations and was the, quote, first aggressor. When the murder happened on July 25, 2020, Perry, now a 35-year-old Army sergeant, worked as a rideshare driver and had just dropped off a passenger near a BLM protest. Prosecutors say Perry drove into the protest and instigated a confrontation. Perry's attorneys say Foster, a 28-year-old Air Force veteran, motioned to Perry as protesters were beating on his car. I got to practice some, some of our rights. Foster was legally carrying an assault-style weapon that night. Perry had a handgun in his car, and at some point in the exchange, he fired multiple times, killing Foster. During a police interrogation, Perry gave several versions of the position of Foster's gun. Perry also told police he did not try to kill Foster. A Texas jury rejected his claims of self-defense. Now, Jake, it was the day after Perry was convicted that Governor Abbott announced that he wanted a swift uh, resolution to this and a pardon of Daniel Perry. We asked the governor's office today if they still stand behind th those words, and we got a one-sentence response from his spokesperson saying, all pertinent information is for the Board of Pardons and Paroles to consider, as this is part of the review process required by this, the Texas Constitution. So this will still take some time. It's not exactly clear when that board will issue its recommendation to the governor. And this is uh, an important reminder here, Jake, this trial isn't even over yet. There, we are still awaiting when the sentencing phase of this uh, trial will take place. Jake? Ed Lavendera in Austin, Texas for us. Thank you so much. Coming up at the top of the hour, breaking news out of the U.S. Supreme Court and the fight over medication abortion, what that means for women and doctors across the U.S. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, extreme drought conditions made this lake disappear, but now torrential rains and record snowfall have brought it back to life. And with it, a whole new set of problems. Plus, new problems for Boeing 737 MAX planes, the same airlines that were uh, grounded for months after a deadly technical problem was causing the plane to fall out of the sky. This time, Boeing says the planes are safe. And leading this hour... The U.S. Supreme Court just hitting pause on the battle over medication abortion. This means girls, women, and doctors will continue to have full access to mifepristone without any restrictions for now. But what is still uncertain, how long will full access remain? One year after sending the issue back to the states, will the court eventually do a 180 and allow a national ban on this long FDA-approved medicine? Our coverage starts with CNN's Jessica Schneider, who's been diving into what this new court order means and what could happen next. The Supreme Court now weighing into the fight over the abortion pill mifepristone. Justice Samuel Alito putting a temporary pause on any changes to the way the drug is currently administered, but only until Wednesday. The court giving itself more time to decide if restrictions on the drug will go into effect. If the full court doesn't choose to act after Wednesday... 
doctors will be instructed to only prescribe mifepristone up to seven weeks of a pregnancy instead of the 10 weeks now. However, doctors typically have discretion to ignore those instructions. And it will get harder to access the pill. Women will have to see a doctor in person and pick it up instead of talking to a doctor online and receiving it by mail. According to a newly published study, nearly one in 10 abortions obtained last year after the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade used mifepristone subscribed during a telehealth visit with a doctor. And overall, the drug is used in more than half of all abortions. The Justice Department urged the Supreme Court to put all the changes on hold, writing, the FDA is trying to discern their legal duties and urgently demanding guidance. Patients and providers shouldn't be panicking day to day, trying to figure out what the law is today and how it's going to change tomorrow. And that's exactly what it's doing. It's causing a lot of confusion and chaos. The Justice Department points out that mifepristone has been approved for more than 20 years, a scientific judgment that has spanned five presidential administrations. And mifepristone, DOJ argues, is a drug the World Health Organization has included on a list of essential medicines. The Justice Department also pointing out that mifepristone isn't only used in abortions, but also for women who have suffered miscarriages, writing that if any changes are made to the way the drug is dispensed, harms would be felt throughout the nation because mifepristone has lawful uses in every state, even those with restrictive abortion laws. The case was filed by anti-abortion doctors who contend they are trying to protect the health and safety of women and girls. It's a case the mainstream medical community argues should be thrown out in part because the doctors who sued aren't directly involved with mifepristone and didn't have the legal right to sue. There is a way for them, at least for now, to get out of this. And that is by simply saying the truth, which is the people that brought this case, a very small number of doctors, do not have what we call standing. So at this point, the Supreme Court is only stepping in right now to keep the status quo for mifepristone until Wednesday night. That's when the court would would decide whether to step in again and keep those changes once again on hold. In the meantime, Jake, the underlying appeal on the merits of this case, including whether those anti-abortion doctors even had standing to sue, that is moving rapidly in the Fifth Circuit. The first briefs are due at the end of the month. And right now, oral arguments in the case are scheduled for May 17th. So we'll see what the Supreme Court does uh, midweek next week. Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Mary Ziegler is here with me. She's a professor at UC Davis Law School. Uh, Mary, uh, the, the Supreme Court has paused on this issue, hit pause. Um, but I wonder what you think is the likelihood that the U.S. Supreme Court might actually permit a national ban on mifepristone, even though it's been legal and approved by the FDA for decades, and the American people, according to polling, do not want it banned. Um, do you think it's possible that they will allow this ban to go through? I, I do. I mean, I think this case was in some ways tailor-made for a court that's both hostile to the administrative state and agencies like the FDA and hostile to abortion rights. But I think there are a lot of problems with this case as a vehicle. Um, standing, the fact that, that it took almost 25 years to bring this suit, the fact that it's based on science that the FDA largely considered and rejected, and I say science loosely speaking. Um, so I, I think the question really is whether the court will turn away any case that um, scales back access to abortion, um, or if there are still bridges too far for this court. And I, I think that remains to be seen. I'm not sure what the answer will be. The mainstream medical and scientific communities do not agree with these anti-abortion doctors uh, that brought this case. I'm wondering how much you think what we're seeing in the courts 
is because of individual judges and politicians who have theological objections to abortion. They were taught in church uh, that it's murder, um, as opposed to scientific or medical evidence regarding uh, fetal viability and the like. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know what's in people's minds, but I know this strategy makes sense for people who are opposed to abortion in part because when they take their actual beliefs to voters, essentially the idea that a fetus is a rights holding person, that abortion is immoral. We've seen in 2022, we've seen in this recent Wisconsin Supreme Court election, we've seen in ballot initiative after ballot initiative that voters aren't buying it. And so instead making these quasi-scientific arguments is a way of routing things away from voters back to conservative federal courts. And in some ways, asking questions that some voters may not feel competent to answer. You know, the average American doesn't have an opinion on how Mifepristone works or if it's safe or not. And so I think it's it's an effort to kind of move to an area where people opposed to abortion think they can win when they know that voters are an area where they've been losing a lot lately. So um, John Roberts, the chief justice of the United States, seemed to be trying to steer the court towards uh, something of a middle ground, I'll call it that for lack of a better term, which is uh, allowing a ban after 15 weeks of presidency, but not before. Um, But ultimately, Mm -hmm. he was in a minority of one on that. Nobody else uh, was with him. Uh, And what we're seeing now is Governor DeSantis in Florida just signed a six-week ban, with exceptions for rape and incest and human trafficking, I think, uh, this mifepristone is basically used up until 10 weeks. Um, the pendulum is really swinging very, very far in one way. Uh, and and I'm, I'm wondering, what's the scientific argument that is being made here about fetal viability at five weeks? Yeah, I mean, there really isn't a scientific argument about viability. Essentially, what you're seeing is, again, a kind of moral or constitutional argument that abortion is wrong, whether pregnancy is viable or not, Um, that these constitutional rights that anti-abortion people believe in exist from the moment an egg is fertilized. And even in sometimes some of them would argue, even if that's not inside of anybody's body, even if that's as part of an in vitro fertilization process. So part of what you're seeing is that the Overton window is shifting and what is passing for sort of a normal claim within the Republican Party is, is changing pretty rapidly, too. Um, and that means, I think, that even if, if the Supreme Court wants to sort of move in the direction of, of cooling things down, they may do something that still is pretty sweeping and extreme, in part because the GOP and the anti-abortion movement are demanding so much so fast. Mary Ziegler, thanks so much. Uh, let's bring in uh, CNN's Abby Phillip and Sunglin Kim of the Associated Press. Um, so, Abby, uh, the legal battle over this is still ongoing. Um, this is a this was a not unrisky move uh, by the Justice Department to push this onto this Supreme Court, this Supreme Court, yeah. where I'm still struggling to find that fifth vote. Even if you think that John Roberts might side with the three liberals and say Mifepristone should be kept legal, I'm still fig- trying to figure out who that fifth vote is uh, with them. Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you take it to this court, um, even through the appeals process, as we saw what happened with the Fifth Circuit, where they basically handed down a mixed ruling. It's a risk uh, if you are on the left on this issue. But I think in this case, they really had no choice. First of all, uh, what is at risk here isn't just access to this abortion drug, which accounts for more than half of the abortions in this country. The other part that's at risk is the drug approval process in and of itself, which is now a target for potential political, um, uh, you know, political purposes. 
really anyone could decide that they could challenge the FDA approval for any drug, any therapy, any vaccine. And I think that the administration really views this uh, in both veins, both on the abortion issue and in terms of uh, the kind of administrative law part of this. And maybe um, it is actually on that front, the administrative part, where they might have more uh, sympathetic ears in uh, at the at the Supreme Court level. So, Sung Min, uh, last night, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law a six-week abortion uh, ban uh, with exceptions for rape, incest, and, and human trafficking. Um, plenty of women don't even find out they're right. pregnant until seven, eight, nine weeks. Uh, DeSantis released this photo of him signing the bill last night uh, behind closed doors, uh, surrounded by mostly women, saying he was, quote, proud to sign it. Um, how much do you think we're going to hear Governor DeSantis on the campaign trail uh, during the Republican primaries if he runs mm-hmm. or if he becomes a nominee talking about six-week abortion bans. I mean, the fact that he signed this bill behind closed doors and put out a very curated photo of the bill signing is an attempt to for him to control sort of the narrative because they know around him, the, his advisors around him are aware that per, should he be the general election nominee, that this is going to be a very hard, very, very difficult position to sell to a broader public. But you do see how repeated questions about abortion, especially in light of these uh, repeated legal rulings are really tripping up Republican candidates who are declared or considering a run. I did think it was interesting for DeSantis himself when he signed the 15-week abortion ban last year. He did that in front of cameras. He did that in public. He did this one in private. You saw Senator Tim Scott, who announced that he was exploring a bid earlier this week, get asked, is it 15 weeks, 20 weeks, six weeks? And he's finally landed on, I prefer, 20 open to 15, would sign a six-week ban. But all these positions, should they become the general election nominee, are very, very unpopular with the public. And it's, it will be a very difficult pivot for these candidates to have to make. And what's different about this, Abby, uh, is, uh, and then I'll give you the last word, what's different about this is that before Trump, right, it was all theoretical, and there were a bunch of Republicans who would say, it's never going to happen, the Supreme Court's never going to overturn Roe v. Wade, this is the law of the land, don't worry about it, Mitt Romney, John McCain, George W. Bush, they can all just say whatever they want, nothing's ever going to change. That's done. Like, they're banning abortion coast to coast. Yeah. And look, pay attention to the specificity or lack thereof in this conversation. There used to be a time when Democrats used to be the ones kind of, you know, dancing around this, (laughs) tap tap dancing around it. Now it's Republicans who don't want to say, what's the week? What is it, six? Is it 15? Is it 12? Is it 20? They don't want to say because now it's not theoretical anymore. And I think voters have that front in front of mind. You know, when I, in the last cycle, 2022, out talking to voters, center-right voters, who basically said, I don't agree with abortion. I would never have an abortion myself. I, I think it's immoral. But I'm not comfortable with the idea of the government deciding when exactly uh, women ought to be able to make that decision. I don't necessarily think it's the government's role to do that. Um, And Republicans are grappling with that reality right now. A lot of moderate center-right voters just simply are not comfortable with the numbers here. They're not comfortable with six. Some of them are not even comfortable with 12. Uh, You start to see the comfort levels closer to 15 and 20 when you look at some of the polling. Yeah, well, I don't think the Republicans are looking at the polling. And Uh, maybe it doesn't matter because they've got the majorities in the state legislatures. They've got the judges. They can do this, just like Ron DeSantis just did. They can do it on a state-by-state, but the question is, can they do it nationally, which is what is happening now with this Mifepristone issue. Thanks to both. You appreciate it. Be sure to tune in to CNN when Abby hosts Inside Politics Sunday. You didn't get enough, Abby, just now. I didn't either. 
That's Sunday morning at 11 Eastern. You can get some more Abby Phillip. The alleged leaker of U.S. secrets goes to court charged with violating the Espionage Act. What needs to be done to keep classified information safe going forward? A former Secretary of Defense will join us. Then, the new political ad poking fun of an alleged eating incident of Governor Ron DeSantis. Hmm. We'll tell you more about that next. And we are back with our world lead. 21-year-old Airman Jack Tashira had his initial court appearance in Boston earlier today. He faces two charges, including a violation of the Espionage Act, after he allegedly leaked troves of U.S. secrets, and apparently to impress his friends online. Let's get right to CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. John, how did the Massachusetts National Guard have access to this wealth of top-secret information? It's because of the mission. That 102nd Intelligence Wing is basically the base where they fly drones from that are doing intelligence, reconnaissance, surveillance, supporting warfighters, special operators um, in places overseas, targeting terrorists. So almost everything they do in those rooms is classified. If you're working there, you have a secret clearance or a top secret clearance. Hmm. And you also have new information on how this case came together and how they ultimately identified Jack Tashira, law enforcement. So the big break came Sunday going into Monday. Monday, the FBI goes to the home of an 18-year-old kid in California, and he doesn't want to talk. They talk to the kid's mother. They get a lawyer. They sit down together. And this kid, we'll call him Sam, not his name, agrees to sit down. And he says, I know Jack. We've done a video chat together. He explained to me that he was getting nervous about copying classified documents over at work so he could post them. So essentially... He just started bringing the documents home. That leads to yesterday when the FBI comes back after getting the billing address for the server and the address that matches Jack Teixeira's. And they say in a photo array of five people, which one of these is the person you know as Jack? He picks out Teixeira. That gave them probable cause to make that arrest, which was coming at a time when others, including the press, were closing in. All right. Fascinating stuff. John Miller, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss the former defense secretary under President Trump, Mark Esper. Secretary Esper, I want to get your thoughts on how Russia is framing this leak uh, and Jack Tashira on state-run television. They played a clip uh, from Fox uh, in which he played a clip, uh, the host, from CNN. Take a listen. Are they going to turn him into a mini-Trump? During his show on Fox News, Tucker Carlson is showing and quoting CNN reporting. He busts out into a big speech about what happened. He says mainstream media is turning to Shira into the worst traitor. For what? Carlson says it's because the guy told the truth about what is happening in Ukraine, where they are sending money. It's difficult not to agree with colleague Tucker Carlson. So um, they approvingly cited Fox, uh, saying that Tashira was only being punished for telling the truth. And the Russians also called Tashira a heroic leaker. Uh, What's your reaction? Well, Jack, I couldn't, I mean, <laughs> Jake, I couldn't see the clip that you showed, uh, So, and it's hard to follow. But look, <clears throat> the bottom line is this young airman uh, broke the law, apparently, and uh, under the Espionage Act. And it's very serious because he released highly classified information that was detrimental and has caused harm to the United States of America and to our allies. And that's the bottom line. And look, he'll have his chance in court to uh, 
to defend himself, and he needs to be, um, he's innocent till proven guilty. But uh, clearly, th this was a major problem, and I'm, I applaud the FBI for rolling it up quickly. Now we need to get to the bottom of it and find out, was there anybody else involved, and how did he do it, and all those things necessary to kind of plug the gaps and fix the problems, but that's how I see it. So there are, uh, uh, there's obviously a, a group of uh, Republicans, conservatives, MAGA folk, uh, who are siding with Tashira, a, a top ally of Trump and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, wrote on Twitter, quote, uh, Jake, it's, uh, Jack actually, but I guess that's a mistake that a couple people have made. Uh, uh, Jack Tashira is white, male, Christian, and anti-war. That makes him an enemy to the Biden regime. And Tashira told the truth about troops being on the ground in Ukraine and a lot more. Ask yourself, who is the real enemy? A young, low-level National Guardsman or the administration that is waging war in Ukraine? A non-NATO nation against nuclear Russia without war powers. Now, to be clear, the only U.S. troops um, that are in Ukraine are guarding the U.S. embassy. Um, but does it concern you how quickly Republicans, and look, Marjorie Taylor Greene, she might be have fringe views, but she has direct access to Trump, direct access to Kevin McCarthy. They're coming to this guy's defense. Yeah, look, this issue should not be politicized. In my view, it's, it's a clear black and white issue with regard to the law being broken. If there are issues that some in Congress are alleging they were not, alleging they were not informed about, then that's the role of congressional oversight of the executive branch to call them up and find out what was going on. But look, I think the, the vast majority, most Republicans and, and, and Democrats uh, would, would, would agree with what I'm saying with regard to this being a case of espionage that will go through the court process, legal process, and it will land where it lands. I think the, again, the important thing is right now is to find out the scope of the problem, what he released, did he have others working for him, and how do we close up these holes in our classification system and limit access to people who clearly don't need it. So obviously the administration, the Biden administration, is involved in a lot of damage control right now. The classified documents, as you know, revealed key information about Ukraine, revealed U.S. recruitment tactics for CIA operatives. Uh, the documents showed how deep the U.S. had infiltrated uh, Russia's Wagner, Wagner mercenary group and shows the advanced weaponry China's been developing. Um, which of all of that uh, bothers you most? Which of all of that that disclosure keeps you up at night. Yeah, look, there's that and more. And, and it's clearly harmed uh, our Ukrainian partners on the ground in terms of their conflict. We talked about their troop dispositions, readiness, ammunition, things like that. We can fix big chunks of that, if you will, by providing more ammunition and so forth and so on. But what really concerns me is the fact that um, uh, apparently some of that information contained uh, details on how we've penetrated the Russian military, the Russian intelligence and I assume Moscow is plugging those holes up. So we will, for some period of time, not have access to intelligence about what the Russians are doing um, on the ground in Ukraine, what they're planning, so forth and so on. So that would be the top of mind for me. Then, of course, there's the harm done to our allies, um, their, their trust in us, their confidence in our ability to keep secrets and, and, and not disclose sensitive information. So, but the Russian revelations are the most important right now. All right. Former Secretary of Defense Mark Asper, thank you so much. Good to see you, sir. Thanks, Jake. Who just got big booze at the NRA convention? I'll tell you next. In our national lead, the United States has now surpassed more than 150 mass shootings this year. That's according to the Gun Violence Archive. CNN defines a mass shooting as one in which at least four people are shot, not including the shooter. 
Four such instances were reported yesterday in New York City, in Houston, Detroit, and Bridgeport, Connecticut, with each of these incidents resulting in four victims. All told, more than 5,000 people have been killed from gun violence this year, including 73 children. Relatedly, in our politics lead, the National Rifle Association, which continues to successfully lobby against gun restrictions, ones that are supported in polling by most Americans, is beginning its annual convention in Indianapolis, Indiana today, drawing many Republican presidential hopefuls. The gathering is taking place just four days after the deadly bank shooting in Louisville and less than three weeks after that other school shooting at the Covenant Christian School in Nashville. Today, convention attendees heard former Vice President Mike Pence and some gave him something of a chilly reception. Well, hello, NRA. I love you, too. CNN's Kristen Holmes is outside the NRA convention in Indianapolis. Kristen, that is Vice President Pence's home state where he was the governor. He's still super pro-gun, pro-NRA. What was that? Yeah, Jake, it was actually very jarring. It was not the entire room. It was a handful of people, but it was loud and it was very clear. And he played it off. The former vice president played it off. He said, I love you, too. And he continued on with his speech. But it wasn't just when he entered the room. It was also when he left a continual booing there. And I talked to one attendee who said it was directly related to the break the fracture between him, him and former President Trump over January 6th. And I will note, this was a very Trump-friendly crowd. When you walked into the convention center on a huge billboard welcoming everybody was a picture of Trump with Wayne LaPierre, the CEO of the NRA, and then all the other speakers were in small little boxes next to it. The entire crowd, uh, almost everyone I spoke to, was there to see the former president. He got a standing ovation. So not that surprising that Pence would not get the warmest reception given their relationship. And it is interesting to know this was the first time that they were both at a public event, the same public event. Now, they didn't overlap, but they haven't talked in over two years. And of course, we know this is a collision course, looks to be, looks to be a collision course in 2024 that they're currently on. All right, Kristen Holmes at the NRA convention in Indianapolis, Indiana. Mike Pence's home, home state, if I didn't mention that. I want to bring in CNN political commentator Jonah Goldberg, along with former Deputy Assistant and President Biden, Rohini Kosoglu. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, are you surprised that they're, I mean, they were booing him because of his position in favor of democracy and the Constitution, not because of, you know, he, he, he hadn't come out in favor uh, of new gun restrictions. Right. I mean, are you surprised that this is still... So baked in? Yes and no. I mean, look, I mean, NRA right now is essentially a very well-armed CPAC. Um, and a lot of these guys are presumably from out of state coming here for the convention. I know people who go to the NRA convention. And so if you were going to take a random sample of very hardcore, very ideologically committed base Republicans and put them anywhere, you could see Pence getting booze because he still have something like 60 percent, 70 percent of the Republican you know, electorate saying that they don't want to let go completely on the stolen election stuff. So um, I want to ask you, this is an issue, some gun restrictions, not all, not, not uh, all of them, but some gun restrictions pull very, very well uh, with the American public in general, with independent voters, some of them even with Republicans, and yet Democratic legislators uh, can't get anything passed. Well, it, there's no question, having worked on multiple presidential campaigns, the you know, what's important to look at here, it's not that these Republican candidates don't know that the vast majority of Americans, we're talking about 90% approval ratings for things like universal background checks, keeping guns out of the hands of domestic abusers. 
they don't care. And because what they're trying to do is to get the endorsement of the National Rifle Association. And what we're looking at is being able to signal for an endorsement that that they will support their agenda if they become president. Why do you think Democrats can't achieve something that is, according to polls, popular? I'm not talking about you know, the, the stuff that does not pull well, like, you know, banning guns mm-hmm. or whatever. But, but there, is, there are a number of measures uh, preventing domestic abusers from being able to get guns, example. That's, that's an issue that the NRA fights all the time, and yet it, it, it pulls. It's horrible. Yeah, well, I mean, it depends which Democrats and where you're talking about, right? Because on a national level, it's very hard to get any legislation passed that can get over a filibuster, for example. And on the state level, the states that are very, that have you know, what critics would call very lax gun laws, those laws are very popular. And, um, and the states that have very strict gun control laws, um, they already have very strict gun control laws. Right. And so it's just, it's sort of a distribution problem. There's also just the, the sort of, not to get all Mansur Olson, but there's sort of a concentrated benefits, diffuse costs thing. The people who care a lot about gun rights are very organized, just like the people who care about abortion rights are very organized. They pay very close attention to politicians, and politicians pay very close attention to them. And so in the lead-up, especially in a primary season, getting the endorsement is, is, is a big deal. So let's talk about something a little bit more fun. The Super PAC aligned with Trump's presidential campaign has released a new ad that goes after Governor Ron DeSantis over entitlements, although you, you, it might be a little bit more memorable for uh, reenacting an, uh, an allegation of one way that supposedly... Mr. DeSantis once ate pudding when apparently there was no spoon to be found. Take a look. DeSantis has his dirty fingers all over senior entitlements, like cutting Medicare, slashing Social Security, even raising our retirement age. Tell Ron DeSantis to keep his pudding fingers off our money. Oh, and somebody get this man a spoon. Um... Very memorable. There is, it was an ad obviously meant to invoke disgust. and It is disgusting, <laughs> that ad. But at the same time, um, the positions that the ad is putting forward about no cuts to Medicare and Social Security look far more similar to, you know, positions that the President Biden just a few weeks ago was defending and saying we will not take, we will not cut Medicare and Social Security. So it's an interesting Contrast, but certainly very creative. Well, you know, it's also interesting, and I do want to get you to weigh in on the pudding part of this also, but, but Donald Trump, as the Washington Post pointed out, every single budget that he sent uh, to Congress had proposed cuts in Medicare and Social Security programs, every single one. And in 2020, uh, he told CNBC that entitlements would be on the table. Yeah, but he lied, right? He also told voters that he wanted, um, that he was never going to touch their Social Security. He's always been against it when it actually would matter. This is sort of a sop to a wing of the Republican Party. Look, I think the ad, you know, is kind of brilliant, right? I mean, you know, Churchill famously complained about puddings that have no theme. Mm -hmm. But to get shots about your entitlement position in with a a theme of pudding is kind of clever. And it's going to stick. Not only is it going to stick in people's heads, it is going to get, like it just did, enormous free media. Because it's just so weird and gross. And everyone's like, can you believe they're doing this? And so it's it's a smart play. Pudding sticks. That's the lesson I'm getting from this. Pudding sticks. Thanks to both. You have a great weekend. In France, the so-called wise men have spoken. And the masses, they're not happy. The people are revolting. Stay with us. We're back with more of our world lead. Take this job and stay in it. 
That's now the official order to the people of France after that country's Constitutional Council today fully approved a pension reform bill that raises the retirement age in France from 62 to 64 in order to keep the pension program in France solvent. The approval of that bill further set off more protests today. CNN's Fred Pleitkin is in Paris with the fallout. The green light for French President Emmanuel Macron's pension reform bill met with red flares by protesters. As you can see, the people here voicing their anger after the decision of the Constitutional Council, and many of them are saying they will continue to go out on the streets and protest even after this decision. The ruling made by members of the French Constitutional Council, known as the Wise Men, gives Macron the go-ahead to raise the age of retirement from 62 to 64. Since his first election, he acted very badly. He acted always against us, against the people. He's not not a Democrat. He's he's an autocrat. The government is expected to enact the approved bill into law this weekend with an invitation for talks already extended to union leaders. Ahead of the ruling, police barricaded the country's highest constitutional authority after outbursts of violence on Thursday, the 12th day of demonstrations against this bill. Following the ruling, the French Prime Minister said there is neither a winner nor a loser tonight. But opposition leaders are already urging Macron not to enact the law, with protesters also vowing to continue their fight. Yes, we are going to keep protesting because we, we, need, we need to be respected. I don't see how people could just let it go and uh, forget about it. The discontent on the street, a sign that despite this victory, Macron could still have a bumpy road ahead. And that discontent, Jake, is being voiced on the streets of Paris tonight uh, as well. In fact, we were on hand just a couple of hours ago as police faced off with the protesters that were still left. It's almost a cat and mouse game on the streets of Paris with people setting fire to trash, people starting sort of small ad hoc protests and the police really coming in in full force and charging those protesters. And it doesn't look as though that's going to end anytime soon. In fact, a lot of the people that we were speaking to today are saying they are vowing to continue to come out because they are so angry at the way that Emmanuel Macron has pushed through this reform, Jake. Yeah, if politics is the art of uh, persuasion, it looks like President Macron has some work to do there. Fred Pleiken in Paris, thank you so much. Coming up, drought turned a critical patch of California bone dry, and now rivers in the sky have brought a dead lake back to life. CNN's Bill Weir will take us there next. In our Earth Matters series, there is a clear picture emerging to see how the climate crisis is not a matter of getting warmer or colder, but the reality is that we now live with a series of extremes. CNN's Bill Weir shows us how one critical spot in California went from nearly bone dry to a wash in water. In California's Central Valley, farmers have spent much of the last 20 years praying for rain. But then came this winter of relentless rivers in the sky, enough to bring a long dead lake back to life and drown over 150 square miles of farmland and counting. So now they pray for the water to stop. It is mind blowing to realize that if you'd stood here for the last couple of generations, you'd be watching the sunset over dusty fields of cotton or alfalfa or pistachio trees, and now it is waterfront property. I had no idea Tulare Lake 
was once the biggest freshwater body west of the Mississippi, but it was dammed and diked and drained to build a $2 billion agriculture industry. And now it's back. It's proof that water never forgets. And this may just be the beginning because behind those clouds over there, the Sierra Nevadas are so packed with snow. It's 260% above normal. And sooner or later, that's gonna melt, which is only gonna make this flooding worse and last longer. The last time it flooded this dramatically here was 1983, and it took two years to dry out. You were telling me about the effects in 83. Yes. The town hollowed out pretty much. Yes, I was in the school board at that time in 1983, and we lost half our school population, about one third of our city population. And a lot of the people that were fuel workers lost their homes, their cars. And this time, in addition to the dripping time bomb in the mountains, Corcoran is many feet lower in elevation. After years of over-pumping groundwater to grow thirstier crops, made this one of the fastest sinking areas in the nation. So the ground has literally sunk in some places by 10 or 15 feet over the past decade. That has literally changed the topography of the historical lake bed. Some places are lower even than they were the last time there was a big flood event. So there's quite a few unknowns. We have a that is UCLA scientist Daniel Swain. And last summer, he published a paper that found weather whiplash will become only more extreme on an overheating planet. And worst case, Tulare Lake could grow into a vast inland sea. That as disruptive and as damaging as this year's flooding has been, it's still nowhere near close to what we foresee as the plausible uh, worst case scenario. The levee that we're standing on is called the Corcoran Levee. It's a 14.5 mile levee that protects the city of Corcoran, the two state prisons, the residents here. There's about 22,000 residents and about 8,000 inmates. And so the work behind us that you'll see over here with the tractor work in the distance, they're actually building the levee up another four to five feet. God willing, that'll protect the city of Corcoran. There's a race against the melt, basically. That's exactly happened, right. right. So we've been fortunate with a very slow, mild spring so far, but we know the heat's coming. All of the crops are completely flooded and ruined. So that's, it takes a lot of jobs for people. That's a lot of food that provide, we provide for up and down California and all around the nation. It's pretty scary. <laughs> And unfortunately, this is just the beginning, right? Because Very beginning. the big melt hasn't even really begun. Yes, uh, this is just from the rain. The snow melts, there's nowhere for it to go besides here. You know? So Tulare Lake is back for yeah, a while. Yeah, it's, it's back and it may take over and put us out. And Jake, while young families like that consider moving, leaving the area, I, I talked to retirees, seniors who've lived in the same house their whole lives, trying to scape together the $1,000 it takes to buy flood insurance in a place where that would have seemed laughable not long ago. But just over there, you can see the earth movers trying to shore up that levee there that hopes to protect the prison and then the town beyond. Meanwhile, Southern California still bracing for cuts from the Colorado River because the mega drought continues it is an era of extremes now, Jake. An era of extremes indeed. Bill, we are in California. Thank you so much for that. Turning to our world lead and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, let's bring in Wolf Blitzer, who's getting ready in the Situation Room. Wolf, you're, you're going to take a look at how NATO forces have been preparing for the worst. 
That's right, Jake. Uh, we're going to debut an exclusive report that takes viewers inside NATO's first line of defense against Russia on the eastern front of the war in Ukraine. CNN's chief national security correspondent, Jim Shudo, had an extraordinary ability to gain access to these NATO troops positioned in the Baltic Sea. He watched them train for Russian attacks by sea and by air, even as they were shadowed by Russian aircraft and ships. It's all coming up in the next hour right here in the Situation Room. And one more note, Jake. Later tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, CNN is airing my special report, Never Again, a tour of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Jake, as you well know, the museum is packed with information that is so vital for people to see, especially now with anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial on the rise. For me, all this is very, very personal as a son of Holocaust survivors. Yeah, and we're about to approach the uh, 80th anniversary uh, of the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. Thank you so much, Wolf. We'll see you in the Situation Room in a few minutes. Coming up, new concerns for the same planes that were grounded in 2019 due to that technical glitch that caused those planes to fall out of the sky. Are they still safe to fly? Stay with us. In our money lead, Boeing has found a manufacturing problem with some 737, 737 MAX aircraft. They're insisting it's still safe to fly in those jets, but they would not say how many planes are affected, beyond calling it a significant number. CNN aviation correspondent Pete Montine joins us now. Pete, how big of an impact will this 737 issue have on travel going forward. Well, Jake, the long-term impact's still not clear yet. This is still another bad look, though, for Boeing as it's rebuilding the reputation of the 737 MAX right now, its best-selling jet. This new issue is very different than what led to the two MAX disasters in 2018 and 2019. Boeing says now there is a manufacturing defect with a fitting in the rear part of the fuselage. Boeing has not said exactly how many airplanes have this problem. Right now, there are about 1,000 MAXs flying worldwide, more than 300 in the U.S. In a statement, Boeing says those airplanes are safe, calling this not an immediate safety of flight issue. Now, the FAA, which came down hard on Boeing after the MAX crashes, says it has validated what Boeing says is true. But now the big question is about a fix. Still not clear how intense this will be. Contractor Spirit Aerosystems, which builds the parts in question, says it's working on an inspection and repair plan right now. Airlines are insisting this will not impact their schedules in the near term, but we still don't know how long this will take to rectify. Jake. All right, Pete Montine, thank you so much. I will see you this Sunday on State of the Union. I'm going to talk to the Republican governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, plus Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern on Sunday morning. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN if you ever miss an episode of the show. You know by now, you can listen to The Lead once you get your podcast. It's all two hours just sitting there like a big, delicious bowl of fettuccine Alfredo. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. Right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I will see you Sunday morning. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. 
a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.